Hey, good morning again. Thank you again just for being here. Glad that the Lord gives us this, this place t- today, this time together. Um, if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to start kind of getting it, grabbing it. But don't put it on your lap yet because I am going to ask you to stand in a second. But, but start kind of moving your mind to Romans chapter 3. And if you would stand, I would love to read the passage for us today. Um, we are back in our series, The Pure Gospel, that we've been walking through over the last um, couple months. Took a, took a little bit of a break, and now we're back in. And here is God's word to us today. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. Here's the word of the Lord to us. But now, God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Jesus Christ when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. The sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It's based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. After all, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. There is only one God And he makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. What then? If we emphasize faith, does this mean that we we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. This is the word of the Lord to us today. You can be seated. Thank you. There's a lot there. But if you take anything away today is that the good news is really, really good. And, and we've been in this book for the last couple months and we're, we've walked through bad news and we get to this point now and we're like, oh, I'm ready, for, I'm ready for the good news. And this passage, some would say, is kind of like the Magna Carta of the gospel. And so you're going to see Paul walking us through. You're going to see the beautiful um, realities of the gospel. You're going to see the significance of the cross. You're going to see that Jesus is the center. He's the hero. And so all that to say, this is why, if again, you're you're tracking, you're taking notes, you have a pen, just, just we're going to see it all in this passage. And I'll try, by the grace of God, to do it justice. You know, there's a famous author, you know him, J.R.R. Tolkien. Any good sermon starts with Tolkien. No, just uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, known for his epic books, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings trilogy. And Tolkien was, 
He's looking around and he was realizing that there wasn't a word that captured the essence of something he was trying to portray or something that he would portray. And he's looking around and realizing that there wasn't a word that would capture his essence. And he coins his own word and it's called you catastrophe. Um, Everyone say you catastrophe. All right, way to go. We're learning today. So he looks around and he wants a word that would capture the essence of that part in a story when destruction and pain and hopelessness were at their greatest and when expectations of resolution or salvation or rescue were at their least and then there's that part in the story but then suddenly against all odds a positive outcome emerges and this unexpected outcome brings with it to the audience relief joy, wonder at its greatest. And he plays this out in the stories, doesn't he? I mean, you see it all through the Lord of the Rings trilogy, none best as that battle at Helm's Deep in book two, the, the, the two towers where the Aragon and forces of good are battling all night. And to be honest with you, they get to a point when you start to know that their demise is gonna be met soon if something didn't happen. They were gonna die And then Gandalf appears and he's on his horse, Shadowfax, and he's glowing. I mean, it's just an amazing moment. I mean, I can picture it in my mind. But you have these moments, and I would say that in the book of Romans, we are now at this eucatastrophe moment, this sudden and surprising turn for the better. And we get to this place place in chapter 3, verse 21, where previous to this, all hope seemed to be lost where we're keenly aware of the depths of our brokenness and the consequences of our sin. And again, Paul's been meticulously and masterfully playing out for us the bad news. Why? Because in order to know how good the good news is, we need to know how bad the bad news is. And to talk about the gospel, we need to talk about sin. But the gospel doesn't stay there. It moves us to Christ. It moves us to the fact that he has come to rescue us out of sin. Now, we need to know the bad news, and the bad news is bad. You know, in the opening chapters, you see that we all are under the power of sin, and it affects all of us in all ways, Gentiles, Jews, everyone. And you get to this point and the implications for all of us up until now is is that we stand, we stand, condemned because of our our sin, we're guilty, we stand unable, incapable of, of fulfilling the law. We can't do it. We break the law. We're law breakers. There's something about our hearts, the sinfulness of our hearts, the selfishness. We can't keep the law on our own. And we stand powerless and helpless to change. We can't reach into our heart and make it change. God has to do it. Someone supernatural has to do it for us. And so is there any hope? Well, you wait for a eucatastrophe, this sudden turn. And we get to verse 21, and the first two words are what? But now. Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, there are no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than just these two words. But now. And good news breaks in and the good news is really, really good. The good news is that even though we stand condemned and lost and incapable to save ourselves, God has provided a way for us to be made right with him. And that's the first, the essence of the first three verses of our passage, 21, 22, 23, 24, actually. I'll throw, I mean, the whole thing. But now there is really good news. Verse 21 says, 
God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. Up until this point, we know that there's no way for us to be made right with God by keeping the law. But now there's a way that he provides without having to do it. Because he understands who we are. He understands that we sit in sin. He understands the brokenness. He understands it. But, but his love moves him to provide a way for us to be made right with him. And again, he saw this plan before the creation of time. I'm creating a people who I will redeem, who will willingly choose to love and worship me, and I will make them right with me. And that's the central theme of our passage, being made right with him. If you're in the NLT, you'll see that like six or seven different times. If you're in the the ESV, you'll see this idea of the righteousness of God or being made right with him or being justified. And he uses all these terms that really shows us that because of Christ, there's something that happens to us that we can be made right with him. How can we be made right if we are sinful and he's holy? How can we be made right if, he, if we're sinful and he's righteous? That's the question. There's a giant gap in between. Well, he plays this out. This is the good news. That there is a way to be made right with him. And it comes. And here's the three phrases. It comes through faith in Jesus. The good news is for everyone. And is given freely. It's through faith in Jesus. Faith. It comes through your faith. Faith is a response of trust. It means to put your hope in him. It means turning your eyes away from yourself. It means not boasting in your efforts or your works because you know they're not good enough. They know that we can't do it on our own. I feel that way. I mean, every day I feel that this, this, this unworthiness, this undeserved, but, but every day we move our hearts to cling to the gospel because it's by faith in Jesus. What's the opposite of faith? Boasting in ourselves disavowing our need, clinging to our own efforts. That's, that's the opposite. It would be as if, as if we were drowning in the middle of the ocean and we were clutching a fistful of $100 bills and we shout, oh, I'm okay, I got my money, I'm good. Right, that image, we just know it's hopeless. It doesn't make sense. It's not, it, won't, it won't cut it. That's what boasting in our efforts is. And yet Jesus says, but there's a way. And it's through faith in Christ. Listen, it's not just faith in general that saves. We have faith in a lot of things. It's not just faith in God that saves. Because, listen, even demons believe that God exists. It's not the size of your faith that matters. Because, hey, you can have faith the size of a mustard seed. And that is acceptable to God. Because it's all about the object of your faith. Who do you put your faith in? It's faith in Jesus Right? Because the object of our faith has to be one that has the authority, has the ability, has the, the uh, strength to save us. And Jesus validates that he is able because of his life, his death, and his resurrection. And this good news, this salvation is for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. Why? Because we, he knows that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short, and there's that great verse 23 that's so pivotal to the gospel message that we know that our sin separates us from God, and there's this giant gap, and I can't get there on my own, no matter if I'm Paul the Apostle, no matter if I'm Billy Graham, no matter if I'm the most sacrificial missionary, that my sin separates me from God, and I fall short of his standard. And what's the standard? It's perfect obedience. It's perfect keeping of the law. 
It's perfect righteousness. Well, who, who can do that? Nobody. But that's again why he's the hero. That's again why the good news is so good. And this good news is free. It's given to us free. And the key word in verse 24 is that it's in his grace. Grace is an unmerited, undeserved gift that he gives to us. It comes without cause. You didn't do anything that would cause the Lord to show you kindness. Remember, you and I were sinners. No, it's simply the Lord's love and kindness to us that moved him to extend grace. And honestly, you get to the word grace and, and we all should just go, go wow. And that's why when you think about a people that he redeems that choose to willingly love and worship him and obey him and obey the law and live for him in whatever way he calls us to, to, to step into the, to serving in different ways, we do it. Why? Because we're free to love. Because we've experienced this grace that I can, I know my sin. I know all the things I've done in my past. Even yesterday, I, I know things that are in my mind, in my life. And yet I go, but you've, you've loved me enough to die for me? Well, you get to this point, verse 24, and you, you hear all these realities of the good news, and there should be part of us, and this is what Paul's doing, starting to go, well, how does that work? Like, what, how, how can this be? I mean, if we've talked about God is, being, is righteous, how is God able to extend grace to sinners? Sin can't just be swept under the rug. That, that would compromise his character. So how does he do it? Well, sin isn't swept under the rug. The consequence, consequences of sin were carried out, just not by us, but they were placed graciously on Christ. And in verses 24 and 25, you begin to see Jesus and why the cross, why he was necessary, why he is the good news and so if you look at Romans 3, 24 and 25, look at this. This is the NLT. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Jesus Christ when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. How did this happen? How can this happen? For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Scripture says in Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, that's the radical concept in our culture that we don't talk about this a lot. We don't talk about these types of things of how to be made right, how to receive forgiveness, how to have atonement. But Scripture says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Well, why? Because sin, any sin is a big deal. The Bible speaks about how all sin is first against God. Now, listen, we don't talk about that. Because, again, I think we have a low view of sin, we have this low, kind of we minimize it. But when you think about how Scripture declares that sin, any sin is first and foremost against God, and sin is an affront to our holy king. Sin is an affront to our creator. Sin is an affront to, the, to, the, to, uh, to a holy and righteous God. When you start to think about that, then sin is costly and in demands justice or ju judgment. And for sin to be forgiven and atonement made, a sacrifice has to be made. Blood has to be shed. Life has to be taken. That's, that, that's what's really at, at play when you think of blood has to be shed. Life has to be taken. And not just any type of sacrifice, but the sacrifice of one that was sinless. An unblemished sacrifice as a substitute. One life for another. 
Now you may say, well, well, that doesn't seem fair. Doesn't, why, does that, why does it need to be a sinless life? Because if it wasn't sinless, it itself would need to be judged and wouldn't be a worthy sacrifice. And this is why all through the Old Testament, there's very clear patterns and rules for how the people of God would do animal sacrifices. And that would be the way that that would cover over the sins of the people. Blood needed to be shed. But even in that, here's, here's the next step. Even in that, the blood of unblemished sheep and goats could only go so far because it was an animal being substituted for a person's sin. And that, that, wasn't, that wasn't able, it wasn't enough. We ultimately would need an unblemished person to be a willing sacrifice, one who could stand in the gap for all humankind as that sacrifice. And this is why Jesus is the good news. That he was the one, the only one able. He was the sacrifice. And if you look through these next few verses, 24, 25, 26, what you begin to see is these three beautiful realities that take place because of Jesus and what he accomplished for us on the cross. The first reality is that because of Jesus, I can be, de- I can be declared righteous. And so with this reality, picture a courtroom where you stand before a judge and because of something that happens, he's able to look at you and look at me and say, I, you are now you are now made right in my sight. I now declare you righteous. And that's what the word justification means. It's a judicial term. It was used in courtroom. And so at the point, at the moment of our faith in Christ, a new verdict is rendered. The verdict is you're righteous. And so you picture the scene, you're standing in front of a courtroom and you're guilty, I'm guilty. And yet one chooses to stand in our place, raises his hand, says, I will fulfill the law, which they can't do. I will give my life, which I'm going to spare them from. I'm going to do it for them. And so there's this great exchange. I'll fulfill all righteousness and I'll fulfill the law. I'll pay their penalty. And because of what I do, they can stand there and I can declare them righteous because of me. And that's what's at play. That's the first reality. The second reality that we see because of Jesus is that I can be freed from the penalty of my sin, verse 24. And what's at play here is this beautiful idea of redemption. And redemption is a term that ties way back to Israel's freedom from slavery in Egypt. It carries the meaning of freedom or to be bought back, to be freed from, to be, to be freed from debt. The Lord redeemed his people, we hear in the scriptures you know, a kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament was this, was a, was this built-in way for one who was in, indentured into slavery because of debt where a kinsman redeemer could buy them out so they can live free again. And because Jesus substituted himself for you and for me, we are freed because he paid our, our debt. He brought you back. He brought me back. So listen, salvation is free for you and I. It's freely given but it doesn't mean it wasn't costly. It costs, it costs Christ, it costs one his, his life, and it demonstrates his love. The third reality we see in verses 25 and 26 is that because of Jesus, the wrath of God against me is satisfied. The theological term at play here is this word propitiation. You see it in the ESV. In the ESV it says, Christ Jesus whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood. And the emphasis in that word is on the sacrifice. 
what happens in the sacrifice when the blood is shed, what happens? And in that moment, the wrath of God that was against us because of our sin was placed fully on him. And the wrath of God was fully satisfied in that sacrifice. And it was, it was, it was deemed complete, done, satisfied, removed. Now, I know that when we think about that word wrath, God's wrath, it, it conjures up different things. And, and what, is it, what, is, what is wrath? What is the idea behind the wrath of God? And, and here's, here's the way to think about it. The, the, the idea behind God's wrath is about God's opposition towards evil. And that's a good thing. That God opposes evil. For God to be just, he has to oppose evil and even our participation in it. We weren't just innocent people who made a few little mistakes. We participate in sin. And God's justice and righteousness demands fierce opposition to evil and sin. But it's not this idea that, oh, God's just mean. There's this, there's this, there's this angry deity in the sky that just likes to crush us. Or we sometimes go, God, why, are you, why can't you just let it, let it like slide? Why can't you just give us a pass? And so the wrath of God is not about God being mean or vengeful. It's about him being just. And because of his love, he willingly chose to bear it. The idea is to drink. He was willing to take the cup of God's wrath and drink it so that we wouldn't have to. And that's good news. Now, I know I've said a lot in the last five minutes or so. If you're still thinking deeply, Paul keeps going. <laughs> and so I, I'm going to keep going. But, but here, here's what's happening. Paul begins in verse 25 and 26 to show us these more glorious facets of the cross. And he's really wanting to explain two things. First, he's wanting to explain how the cross works in human history. For there were people who lived before Jesus came. What about them? How does that work? And then second, he wants to show how the character of God is not diminished in the cross or by his patience, but is fully demonstrated. And so to set up verses 25 and 26, it could be like this. Do you realize the impact of the sacrifice? And then verse 25, his sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness for he himself is fair and just and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. So the logic here is here, is this. If Jesus' if Jesus's sacrifice on the cross was the only way that God's wrath could be fully satisfied and forgiveness given, then what about those who trusted in Yahweh before Jesus' death on the cross? What about the Old Testament saints? What, was he unfair or unjust in forgiving their sins because the perfect sacrifice hadn't happened yet? And the answer, no. Because the designed plan for their salvation was always Jesus as well. It was just from a different vantage point. God's plan of salvation has never changed. It has always been faith. It has always been through faith because of Jesus. Tim Keller writes this. He says, if God had really and totally forgiven the sins committed by his Old Testament people, nothing more would have needed to be done. Just keep the plan going. But Paul is showing us that, in fact, God had not forgiven them so much as just has left them unpunished until he punished his son for them at the cross. In other words, God and his patience had deferred payment on those sins. 
The sacrifices of the Old Testament were only and always placeholders pointing to Jesus. They did not really pay the debts. God was accepting Abraham, Moses, David, and all the Old Testament saints when they repented and trusted in his mercy, but he accepted them on the basis and the future work of Christ. In other words, Jesus and the cross has always been the design-saving work for all people for all time, and it's the cross that becomes the pivot point between eras. Those before, saved on the basis of Christ. Those after, us, saved on the basis of Christ, through faith in God, that he is the only way that can forgive our sins. You see, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, it, it points us to that amazing reality. It's the pivot point. It's the crucial thing. But what you also see in the cross is that, that in the cross, it's this perfect demonstration of both God's righteousness and his love in this one moment. That God's righteous. He's holy. He won't let sin go unpunished. He is a good judge. He will hold us accountable, and he needs to. But at the same time, he doesn't leave us there. He shows us his love. So in the cross, we see, we see all that was required, payment, punishment, sacrifice. But it also shows the extent to which he would give, even to the point of giving his son, giving his life. Isn't it amazing that God is both righteous and loving? He is both just and patient. He's holy and merciful. He is present. I mean, you can just name it. God is unified in all of his attributes at all times. It's not like God just turns one off and turns another one on. God is unified in all of his attributes. He's fully righteous, fully loving, fully holy, fully merciful, fully sovereign, fully meek. And God is all of those things at all times, and he never has bad days. Now, you get to verses 27 and 31, and I'm going to summarize here, because really what I think Paul is doing is he's starting to lead us to implications, which really, to be honest with you, is the giant question for all of us to be thinking. All right, this is a lot. This is so good. I get it. Christ is the key. He is why we can praise and worship. It's why we can know and have a right relationship with God. And again, one of the biggest prayers in all this for me is, God, would you help me feel it, know it, grasp it, cling to it? Uh, Let me not take it for granted But Paul leads us to these implications and he says, well, can we boast in anything that we've done? And the answer, no. After all that we've been walking through, after all that we've seen, it's a really easy answer. No, we can't boast in anything that we've accomplished. We can only boast in Jesus. Now again, we're we're called to boast in Jesus, which means hope in. It means put put our faith in, put our identity in. But anything else I boast in, I'm doing the same thing. I'm putting my hope in that. I'm putting my identity in that. It can only be in Jesus because of what he's done. All right, second question. Can, I, can we do away with the law? Can I, can I put it in the trash bin? Can I consider it or put it in the category of done or half, or, or half whatever? I, you know, can we, can we put it away? And Jesus says, Paul says No. Of course not, absolutely not. In the very last sentence of our chapter, it says, in fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. 
Now, obviously, there's a lot there, but for today, here's the key. That there's something about our faith in Christ that enables us to to fulfill the law. Now, obviously, we're not doing it ourselves, because I can't. But through placing our faith in Christ, knowing that he fulfilled the law, he did what we could not do, and because he accomplished perfect obedience for us, that when we put our faith in him, when we receive him in faith, he says, you've done it. You fulfilled the law. The law is faith in me. And I give you my righteousness. And, it, and so when we think about the law, don't, get, don't, don't put it away. Cling to it. Because Jesus makes it beautiful. That now when I look at it, I don't just see my sin. I see his righteousness also. And it makes us go, no, the law is beautiful. It is good because, because in it we see Christ and his goodness. So all this, what does it move us to do today, right now, November 5th? It moves us to worship. That when you hear the gospel, when you read a passage like this, when you see front and center Jesus and what he's done, that the prayer, the hope is like, Lord, God, I want to give you my life. I want to I know it. I want to believe it. I want to live for it. And now you might be in this room and you're going, Lord, give me a new awareness of the gospel and what Christ has done because it really should be the center thing of our life. But we also know, I, I, I know we could be in seasons of our life where sin is just so front and center and I just, don't, I just don't feel like God does really give this to me. And I hope that you know Jesus loves you. The gospel is for you. The good news is real. Christ shows it because of what he did for us on the cross, because we know he lived, we know he died, we know he was raised to life, and we can have life in him today. But it moves us, it moves us to worship him and love him. Hey, if you could do me a favor, let's pray and give this to the Lord. Lord, thank you. It keeps us humble Passages like this, realities like this, the fact that God, the king of the world, the creator of the universe, a holy, righteous God, when we are so undeserving, you love us so much that you'd be willing to do this for us. So good, so gracious that we can know you and we can live in freedom now knowing that you've dealt with our sin. And we don't have to earn our way to you. We don't have to prove anything to you. We just get to accept you. God, would you allow that to be the cry of our heart, the, the desire, the foundation of all things, that we, we say thank you and we say we believe and we give you our lives. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen.